It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission, to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In this episode, something I've always been a fan of, the four-day work week. How about you? You like that idea? Well, we're in a time that's a reset as companies try to figure out for people who work in an office environment, are they coming back in the office, part-time, not at all, full-time? This is a time to experiment, and I want to talk about why the four-day work week can help you keep your workers who might be willing to go fly the coop, but they'll stay because they love the three-day weekend. And later, maybe we're turning a corner on the bank junk fee thing. I want to talk about that. So my late uncle was way ahead of his time. 50 years ago, my uncle went to a four-day work week at his business. He had a number of employees that were long-distance commuters to work, and they spent so much time, as he learned from them, they spent so much time on the road coming to and from work those five days a week. And so he went to a format where people worked four 10-hour days and had Friday, Saturday, Sunday off from work each week. There were a small number of people who needed to be in on a fifth day, and they did not adopt that. And um, But everybody else got to do the four-day work week. And the retention of employees, the turnover just basically went away because it was a unique benefit at its time 50 years ago. And what's weird is 50 years later, the four-day work week is something that's talked about but almost never done. And this is a shame, and I've read stories about Uh, I read the Business Chronicle publications, and they write about the four-day work week regularly, and they've been writing about, you know, this law firm adopted it, and this architectural firm adopted it, and stuff like that, but it's so rare still that it's like a story that's almost anecdotal about one particular company doing it. So now... Mr. and Ms. Employer, you're worried about employees leaving you. You're worried about what the work environment's going to be if you've got an office-type environment, and people have gotten used to, for two years, working from home. One of the tools you have available to you that could help you retain people is psychologically, let me tell you something, four days on, three days off is completely different in somebody's life than five and two. It's not even close. You've got to know with your kind of business, would your productivity suffer if people were working four longer days instead of five regular days? But if it works in the environment of your work environment, why don't you consider it? I mean, my goodness. Who would have ever thought we'd have all these situations that never would have happened if it weren't for COVID, that we'd have, uh, what is it, is it 80 million Americans, some number like that, 
who have been working remotely, more or less, through this time period, and now as companies are reopening offices and they're getting people back in at least you know a day or two a week, this is also an opportunity because you did things you never could have imagined you'd do. This could be an opportunity where you do experiment with flex schedules and four-day work week. What's a flex schedule? So a flex schedule in its simplest form is where there's core hours that people have to work. It could be like 11 to 3, the hours that people have to work. And then the time before 11 or after 3 is where the flex is. So everybody can meet and talk to each other and all that, those four hours of a day, and then the other four are before or after that. Giving people the freedom that if their kids and a you know a high schooler and they're in some kind of sports event, that instead of missing it, they can be at it by starting work early that day. It's just an example. If they've got to go to the dentist, that that day they flex, so they still get in their full work day, but they go to the dentist before or after in the flex. And if you do a four-day work week for people then a lot of things they might miss work for, well, they've got that third additional day of a week that they can take care of them. I believe that a flex schedule and potentially a four-day work week raise efficiency of employees. Don't cut it because then you're respecting people and where they are in their lives and what they need in their lives to be good employees for you and take care of everything else. Just my opinion. Krista? All right. This is from Justin. Did I do a four-day work week? No. Okay. (laughs) Justin in Illinois, my social security account update. In the past, you haven't been able to create an account online if you had a credit freeze in place, even if you lifted the freeze. As you've stated on the podcast before, you had to go into a social security office to open one in person. Well, at some point that must have changed. It appears you can now open an account online by temporarily lifting your credit freeze. That is 100% correct. And you want a My Social Security account even if you're decades from receiving Social Security, because if you don't monitor what Social Security has in their database, you snooze, you lose some of your future Social Security benefits. Really easy to set up, and it's easy now to thaw your credit. You thaw it, you set up your My Social Security, your credit's frozen again, you're good. This is from Jenny in Pennsylvania. I'm looking at whole house generators. For a lengthy outage, how do you know natural gas will continue to be available to power it? It seems like some of the big outages have affected both electric and gas. Jenny, that's a great question. And the fortunate thing is that the outages of natural gas lines have been very, very rare, much more rare than the electrical outages. So you can't protect yourself against every possibility, every eventuality. But if you've got a a significantly sized house, there is an alternative you can look at as well. And that's solar with battery backup or just battery backup. You can use batteries now as an alternative to a generator. And you get these battery cabinets that look like typical one. They're as wide as a refrigerator, but they're thinner. 
and they just mount in your garage and you store power to them. And then when there is an outage, they can run a lot of your home, not your, not everything in your home necessarily like a robust natural gas generator, but they can keep you functioning in your house for days with the battery backup. And that is the alternative that you wouldn't have to worry if electricity is down and natural gas is down too. And this is from Blake in Tennessee. Help. The previous owner of my home failed to disclose a leased underground propane tank in the purchase agreement. I found out about this eight months later when they tried to send me their bill. I called the propane company and they told me they could start a new contract for $170 a year to rent it. However, they did not offer to sell the tank. So now I'm either locked into a potentially bad contract or they tear up my yard to dig it out. A new tank would be two to $4,000 to install. I'm trying to work with my realtor to see if there's any remedy for failing to disclose this lease as I thought I was the new owner of the tank. Is there anything else I can do? The propane is only used sparingly for a decorative fireplace. So I'm trying to think we've, we've had this question a number of times, this complaint about the undisclosed leased propane tank. And there's something I want you to store in your head that if you ever buy in a, a more rural area that is not hooked up to a traditional gas source, you want disclosure if there is, in fact, service from propane and you want proof that that propane tank is owned. It is unfortunately way too common that a buried tank is on a lease rather than owned by the property owner. The problem is, as you said yourself, two to $4,000 to install a tank. A lot of people, when they're uh, getting a property, building a property, they can't afford that extra two to $4,000, and they bleed a slow death by paying these ultra-high annual lease rates. So as to whether you have a claim against the seller for failure to disclose a liability, that I'm not a lawyer, I can't speak to that. But what I do want you to know in your case, it is a simpler thing, and that is you tell them to come get their tank, that you don't want it because it is only used for this decorative device and you have it removed by them. Now, when you tell them you're going to do this, Then they may change their tune and they may be willing to sell you the tank because they don't want the expense of having to come remove that thing. And so that would be, um, this is a game of chicken I'm asking you to play, but it's a game of chicken you should play because in the worst case scenario, yeah, they dig up your yard, you have to clean that up later, but you're not stuck with that ongoing obligation for something that is only for a decorative purpose in your house. Same thing can happen with alarm systems in the home. Happens very frequently with burglar alarms that it's not disclosed to you that the alarm is under a lease instead of owned by the property owner. And these alarm things are a mess. Another thing more recently, people leasing solar panels. I don't like these leases of solar panels. 
I want you to own the solar you put on your home. I want you to have an asset, not an obligation that you have to sell. Do you know there are home sales falling through because the buyer doesn't qualify? They'll qualify for the mortgage for the house, but they won't qualify to assume the lease on the solar panels. And from Josh in Maine, would you recommend enrolling in an ESPP? I'm already contributing 8% into a Roth 401k plus a company match. Would this be another acceptable way to save for the future? I'm 34 and have been contributing to my 401k for the last 11 years. So here's congratulations for when you were 23 years old. Um, So Josh, I'm really thrilled you've been saving since you were 23. Along the way, I want you to get that 8 up to 10. Uh, on that, the amount you're contributing into the employer Roth 401k. On the employee stock purchase plan, this is uh, a bit of a cross between a gamble and an investment because you're then putting eggs in that employer basket, the same employer you work for. It's hard to know as an employee how well a company really is, what its prospects are moving forward. Employees tend to have an affinity bias that, oh, my employer's great. They're doing great. They don't have any competition I got to worry about. So it's a higher risk kind of thing doing the employee stock purchase plan. The advantage is usually the employee stock purchase plans come at a 15% discount. So you're getting the shares that you're buying at 15% below market price, which reduces the risk to you. So if you want to participate in the ESPP, if you feel like your company is really well run, um, you're not worried that much about the competition they face, and you get that stock purchase discount, then fine to put some money in. But if the answer to any of those questions is no, don't do it. Now, speaking of something that I have raged against for years, It's how the traditional bricks-and-mortar banks get up every day trying to figure out how they're going to pick your pocket and take from your wallet and reverse bank robbery. Well, it seems the banks are, one by one, getting a little bit more worried about competition and are starting to do away with some of the junk fees. I got that for you ahead. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So I have kind of jumped the gun over the years. For years, I've talked about how the traditional banks have got to change the way they do business, to change their mentality because of competition that's coming. And it seems like the competition has always been just around the next curve. 
But now, more and more people, particularly younger people, are saying, forget you. I'm not going to do business with you because you burned me again and again at your stinking bricks and mortar bank. One of the things that I look at is how the banks will come up with a junk fee and raise it again and again and again to eat up your wallet. And an example of that is overdraft fees. So what does it cost a bank to process an item when you don't have the money? So I've seen estimates of 13 cents to as much as 40 cents. But then the banks charge typically somewhere around $35 when you overdraw your account per item. And the stinkiness of the banks use a system where they clear your items in an order that it will generate the most overdraft fees. So what they'll do is if you have multiple items that come against your account in a day, the most disgusting of the banks will post the largest item first to try instead of generating one overdraft fee to generate four, five, six, seven, eight of them for littler items, charging again $35 each. Well, there's been a lot of pressure on the banks from all these new online banks that don't charge any of these junk fees. And of the ones that upset customers the most, I'd say probably the outrageous overdraft fee upsets people more than anything else. Every time I've talked about the overdraft fees over the years, though, we've had Clark Stinks posts from people saying, well, this is really about punishing people for bad behavior. They refer to it as bad behavior or different language like that. And so it's not about the, you know, 10 cents or 20 cents or 30 cents. It actually costs the bank internally for dealing with that thing that overdrew the account. It's really a behavior modification fee at $35. And I hope that you enjoy working at the bank you work at. Posted that. Anyway, the reality is the bank's are walking dinosaurs. They're still walking, they're still functioning, but the traditional bricks and mortar banks, they're out of touch and they're obsolete. And they're going to have to radically change. Because I can tell you that people that are older who were comfortable with and grew up with a traditional bank that's whole mission is to charge you fee after fee, they're likely not to go to a credit union or an online bank that doesn't fee you to death. But the people that are under age 30 are never going to put up with it. And they are a huge population group. And they are who companies better adapt to and respond to or be prepared to not necessarily become extinct like dinosaurs, but to become a lot less powerful and steadily lose market share. And just remember, anybody who is an investor, you have an option with the discount brokers 
to do your banking with them and avoid all the junk fees that the banks charge. And with the biggest of them, with Fidelity and Schwab, you have branches you can go to as well. So it's up to you, Mr. Ms. Bank. I mean, Capital One, which long has been mostly an online bank in addition to having physical branches, they seem to have had their ear more tuned to what's going on. Good for them. But the shocker is Citibank has now announced one of the largest banks in the world, one of the four giant monster mega banks in the United States, they are now eliminating these junk fees. And you're going to see them fall like dominoes now where the overdraft fees will go extinct. And by the way, Mr. Ms. Banker with traditional bricks and mortar, you either adapt in business or you die. Krista? All right. This first one's from Ann in Georgia. We have been asked to help a family member pay their mortgage and medical bills. Is there a best way to structure the payment of someone else's mortgage? We're worried this might be a longer term ask and we want to be covered and we realize we may never get paid back. So, Ann, I want to tell you that you are a generous soul that you're willing to step up for a family member. And I can tell you're not thrilled about it, but you're going to step up and you're going to keep them from getting thrown out of their house and help with the medical bills. Now, to any doctor, hospital, lab, anything like that, please know you go to clark.com slash clarkstinks to post your anger about what I'm about to say. And the highest priority is to keep a roof over your family member's head. That's a higher priority than paying their medical bills. What I recommend in a circumstance like this is a properly filed, needs to be done as a second mortgage or a home equity line that's a family kind of home equity line where it's secured by the real estate and home equity line kind of situation or a line of credit is probably the best where you have a real estate attorney properly prepare it. And as you fund the mortgage for your family member, it then puts money against this home equity line, if you will, so that at the time of your relative's death or at the time that they sell the property, the money that you have advanced to keep the mortgage current is covered by a payout of what you have lent to them because it was a properly structured loan. But it must be done with the help of a real estate lawyer to make sure that it's done properly in the state where the property is located. You're in Georgia. Real estate lawyers handle almost all real estate closings in your state. It varies by state how it's done, but in all states, there are real estate lawyers that know how to do this kind of thing. From Tom in Wisconsin, my wife and her three siblings will soon have to support her elderly, 80 years old each parents. While I believe we should rent, they are insisting on buying a condo. The condo would be in North Carolina and the children live in North Carolina, New York, and Wisconsin. What advice do you have for four siblings and spouses buying a condo together? Don't. <laughs> Don't. Oh, my goodness, Tom. 
I don't know how your wife convinces her siblings of this, but you've already got a complicated situation where they're each going to pony up to support the elderly parents. And at their age in their 80s, you don't want to buy a property. We're in a completely inflated market for real estate prices anyway. And as I've talked about buying property right now, you need to have an ownership window of 10 years or longer with the conditions that we have right now. This is a situation where they rent. Now, you said one of the children lives in North Carolina. If that child wants to have the risk and potential reward of owning the property, then what can happen in that case is that child buys the property for the purpose of the parents living in it, and the other siblings, the other three, pay a fair market rent to that one child who lives in North Carolina, and that would be the one that owns it. But you're, you're just bringing way, way, way too complicated a situation to the table here by buying a place that each of the siblings would own a part of with no idea how long the parents would be able to live independently, how long they'd live, when someone would have to go into assisted living or something like that. And so this is a classic rental situation, not a purchase one, period. There's not even gray on this one. And from Donna in California, I read your advice to make a copy of your car registration and then white out the address to put in your glove box to deter thieves from driving to your house. But really, all they have to do is press home on your GPS and they will be there. What should we do with the, about that? Okay, I appreciate this. I did this in a TV story like four years ago that you use an address other than your actual real address in your GPS. So if somebody is trying to find your home to steal the vehicle or to break into or whatever, um, they have the wrong address. So it's a place that gets you close enough to your home, maybe down the street or whatever, and you've thrown the scent off the dogs by doing that. And that's the way you're supposed to protect yourself from somebody who, um, poor valets. That's the example I gave on TV. I apologize to valets. But that a valet can get in the car, hit home, know your address if they're not an honest person. Almost all are. And then they have that address or any of a number of other circumstances. And that's why you use a slightly fictitious address as your home. Another suggestion that I've uh, given before is to use a cross street that is near your home rather than your actual address. I think I'm going to put, I'm going to make home in my car, the police station, and I'm going to make an address for police station. That will be my home. Now that's very clever. (laughs) Is that a Krista original? Yes. I just thought of it. Very good. Okay. So talking about GPS, What we're about with this show is giving you a GPS, what we used to call maps, for your life. You know, it's much harder if you don't have a plan for your life to figure out how to get there. 
It's much harder to save money for the future when you haven't really thought through what you want that future to be. What I hope we're able to do with this show, this podcast, and Clark.com is help you build out your personal GPS for your life, your future, your goals. And I hope that we've been able to help you reach those goals. And when you've learned something that you found, hey, that was kind of that moment for you, that you saw things differently, that you saw a way to really get there where you're in control and you think there's real wisdom in there, please share it with people you love, your friends, your family, so they can get that kind of goal setting in their lives and that kind of control of their wallet and their future.